listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. The word of the Lord, as written in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if uh, you've ever wrestled with the question why about something that God was doing or not doing in your life or in the world. Uh, I know that I have, and my wife Amelia and I have, and one of the times in our experience together when it really became a big question for us was just about when we had realized and agreed and followed God's call to go to seminary in order to enter vocational ministry, and so I left behind this career path in the corporate world, and we moved to seminary, and for some reason, that started this long season of having junk cars. We didn't know they were junk cars when we got them. They seemed fine, but we get to seminary, and all of a sudden, this Dodge sedan that we had, we replaced the water pump three times. Uh, the new car, the one new car that we bought, uh, was totaled on the way into town, and uh, then as our family grew and we needed to get a minivan, we, you know, we bought a decent-looking one that we could afford, and within three months, that one had transmission problems, and then we had to replace the water pump a couple of times on that one, and it's just been one story of car problem after another, after another, after another, and then your kids grow up and you have teenage drivers, and they start totaling the cars and, you know, not changing the oil and, and all that stuff. I don't know what I was expecting. But I think there was just kind of this idea in my head, right? Like, okay, God, we love you. We think we're following your plan for our lives. We're not assuming that it's all going to be smooth and never have any trouble. But, you know, we also really weren't expecting that we'd have enough lemons in the driveway to open up a lemonade stand. But for some reason, that's what God has done. And maybe you've wrestled with that why question. Maybe over a difficult relationship or a really significant health crisis or uh, kids that you raised in a certain way and now they're not following the way that you raised them. Life is not turning out the way that you'd expected. And 
All he can say is, welcome to the fellowship of why. I am the local president of our chapter here, and I am welcoming you into membership. Because I ask that why question a lot. I, I think it's part of what makes us human. Uh, as I've reflected on it, I don't think other animals, other creatures really ask the why question, right? I think they ask where. Where is food? Where is shelter? Where is my squeaky toy? We ask the why question because God has sort of wired us to try to make sense of life and our experience and, and look for solutions and answers. And, and it's a wonderful gift that God has given it, but it can also create problems when things don't fit our expectations, when God doesn't line up things the way that we think they ought to go, when our experiences don't seem to make any sense because they don't fit in our categories. And in the passage that we're looking at today, some religious people, some religious leaders come to Jesus with questions. They're trying to figure out why Jesus is doing things that don't make sense. He doesn't seem to fit in their understanding. He doesn't align with their categories. He doesn't fit in their boxes of how God works and what he's supposed to be doing and what he approves of. And in this passage that we're going to look at, this why question shows up in a couple of really significant places. Because Jesus keeps doing things that don't make sense to the people around him. The why that God has planted in us, I think, is meant to lead us to the who that he is as the answer. But Jesus comes and challenges all those expectations we have. Jesus challenges our expectations. He's a God who draws near to us, but not always in the way that we expect. If you haven't already, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, uh, the black Bible in front of you. It's on page 967, uh, or you can pull that up in your faith app or whatever program or device you use to look up God's Word. We're coming to the end of this little mini-series that we've been looking at in this part of Matthew's gospel as Jesus has given this wonderful picture in the long message we call the Sermon on the Mount that shows what God's kingdom is like and the life that he's inviting us into. And now we see that he's not a God who just sort of delivers messages from up on high. He's the God who actually comes near to us. He gets into the reality of our lives, into all of the messes and the pain and the brokenness and the questions to bring healing and hope and help. And uh, today we're going to look at how Jesus challenges a lot of the expectations that we have about who God is and what he's like. And the first thing in our passage is that Jesus challenges our expectations of how God works. Jesus challenges our expectations of how God works. That's in verses 9 to 11. Turn there with me and read along. As Jesus passed on from there, remember last week uh, we'd seen him in this interaction where he declares his authority to forgive sins and demonstrates that he has divine power by healing this paralytic. So he, he goes from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, we assume in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, 
they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, uh, before we criticize these Pharisees, these religious leaders, we should acknowledge that Jesus is here not just challenging them implicitly by what he's doing, but their response is really meant to highlight for all of us sort of an innate expectation, a way that we have of looking at the world and the way that we think God is and what he does. Jesus is challenging this, this natural perspective on life that we could call a religious perspective, which means I know the right things to do and I follow them so that life will work out the right way for me. And I know that I'm in the right place. It's a, that religious perspective is a way of dividing life and dividing the world into two kinds of people, the, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad. And notice Jesus and these religious leaders use these Two descriptions back and forth, the, the righteous and the sinners. And at the end of verse 13, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and these ta- uh, religious leaders are asking, why are you eating with sinners? You're a righteous person. Why are you eating with unrighteous people? And it's, it's interesting because this is kind of a unique in the New Testament, the way that Jesus uses this terminology, because elsewhere... He and, and his inspired apostles who, who write the letters of the New Testament make it clear, as Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No one is righteous in God's eye. Jesus himself goes on to say later in Matthew's gospel, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. And, and I think Jesus is jumping into picking up these terminologies of righteous and sinners so that he can almost do like a little verbal jujitsu and, and turn them back on the people to challenge their assumptions. Because they're dividing the world into good people who do big sins, and bad, little sins, and bad people who do big sins, right? And Matthew is a classic example of what, a good person or a bad person? He's a bad person. He's a tax collector, right? Tax collectors were Jewish nationals who were working for the bad guys. They were working for the Roman occupying enemy and not just collecting taxes, but then their profit was based on how much money they could extort or squeeze out of their fellow countrymen. And there was no upper limit on that. So the Jews were not only considered traitors and collaborators, they were extortioners and thieves and robbers. They were greedy. They were corrupt. The Pharisees said, there's no hope for tax collectors. That's what religion does. It divides people into the good and the bad, the people who commit little sins and people who commit big sins. And the the big sins that bad people commit are traditionally things like criminal activity, like this tax collector is engaged in. And Jesus is hanging around with bad people, with sinners, and that's not what God does. Because God hangs out with good people like me who commit little sins, who commit respectable sins. Now, obviously, nobody's perfect. You know, we, we all fall short. We're all human. I may do things that are wrong, but they're 
They're little sins, not like the things that these tax collectors are doing. That's our default expectation of what God is like. He likes and approves of religious people, good people with little sins. The funny thing is, I don't know if you've ever noticed how those definitions change from group to group and even over time. You know, for example, back in the 1950s, it was common for male bosses to, well, to be really inappropriate with their female co-workers. They would try and get their secretaries to come in and sit on their lap, and they would pinch them, and they would tell crude jokes around them to try and embarrass them, and that was just the way it was. The important thing, though, was that you were faithful to your wife. If you were faithful to your wife, you were a good guy, whatever, however else you treated women in the workplace. The interesting thing is, that's totally reversed now, isn't it? Right? Like the, the worst thing that you can do, the big sin, is sexual harassment, which is, of course, horrible. But nowadays, you're not going to get fired for committing adultery or having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. You may not even be in trouble. And the point of all this is not to say, you know, how stupid those people were, or I'm so glad we've got it all figured out, or to, to try and draw comparisons about which is worse or better. The point is that the difference between one group and another, or one generation and another, or one culture and another, is simply where you draw the line. And we all have ways of saying, these are big sins, these are the really bad things, and these are the little sins. Because we all do it. And we all draw the lines so that I am on the good side. Because the sins that I commit are the little ones, right? And the sins that other people commit, those people, those are the big sins that make them the bad guys. They're the evil ones. They're what's wrong with the nation. They're what's wrong with the world. They're the sinners that God doesn't want to have anything to do with. And we do that because of this natural expectation that that's what God is like. And that's how he works. You stay away from the big sins and, and you only do your little sins and, and you have religious activity so that you can say, I'm good with God and now I'm in a good relationship with him. And so he, he kind of owes me. He owes me a good life because I've I've said no to all the big sins, and I believe in the right values, and I go to church, and I tithe, and I serve, and, and I've sacrificed, and therefore God is smiling on me, and I deserve him to hear my prayers and make life work out the right way for me. That's religion. We tell ourselves that I'm not doing such a bad job because I'm over here on this side of the line, unlike those bad people over there that God is really unhappy with. And then I can say God or life or karma or whatever it is owes me and life should go a certain way. Because it doesn't matter whether, whether you're religious or spiritual at all. We all do this. We all have some kind of a system that lets me know I'm following the rules and I'm in the right place and therefore... I deserve to have life work out. And the reason we know that we feel that way is whenever things don't go the way we think they ought to go. What happens? We don't just get discouraged. We, we get angry. We get resentful. We say, that's not fair. I deserve to have it go this way instead of the way it's actually going. It's unfair that you know, those other people at seminary have cars that work, and they don't have all the car trouble that I have. It's unfair that, 
that I have this thing going on in my life and other people don't have it. It's unfair. It's not right that people who are less hardworking or, or less kind or less tolerant than me seem to have life working better for them. It's not right that God would be so kind to those sinners. It's not fair that God wouldn't answer my prayers when less deserving people seem to be having life work out for them. That's what these Pharisees are saying. And the reason Jesus points this out is because we wrestle with those questions too. Why? Why is it not working out after all I've done, God? And Jesus is challenging our expectation of how God works. And he challenges our expectation of who God loves. He challenges our expectation of who God loves in verses 12 and 13. When he hears what the Pharisees are saying, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, just a, a cool little side note here in verse 13, that go and learn what this means, that's like a, a first century diss. Like, everyone in, would have been standing around going like, ooh, and that was like a big mic drop, like burn. Like, go and learn this is, is kind of the biblical way of saying like, you, what are, go to school, fool. What are you talking about? So Jesus is quoting the, the prophet Hosea here. And Hosea is echoing something that God says through a number of his prophets over and over again. It's basically the idea that you, my people, are, you're bringing me sacrifices. You're, you're doing all the religious rituals. And you're upset that in your eyes it's not working for you. You're not getting the outcome that you want. Don't, don't you understand? What I want is not your religious performance. When things don't go our way and it feels like it's not fair, that's when what's really going on in our heart comes to the surface, isn't it? We're bringing our sacrifices. We're, we're, doing, we're, we're reminding God of the things that we've done or, or the right beliefs that we have. And, and if we look inside of our hearts, we can see that it's there. There's that dynamic, that response, because... We can, we can even feel superior to other people who, don't, who, who we think look at the world differently or they're not living up to the expectation. We feel superior to people who feel superior to other people. It's kind of this weird recursive loop, right? I'm glad I'm not like those people who think that they're better than other people because of what they're doing. Jesus is saying... Don't pay attention to the sacrifices, to, to the things that you think you're doing. Look to the mercy that you need and that I'm providing for you. If we focus on our, our sacrifices, the religious performance, the things that we think we're doing, we're hoping that God will respond and bless and answer us but because of how we're performing that's often why we feel upset, why we feel anxious, why, why we feel resentful that life isn't going the way that we think it ought to go. Man, after all that I've done, after all that I've given, after all the ways that I've served, after how I've lived a good, decent, moral life, and, and this is the thanks I get? 
that's a sure sign that we're looking at our sacrifices instead of looking to mercy. What does that mean when Jesus says, go learn what this means? I'm not looking for sacrifices. I want mercy, and I want you to know mercy. Well, most of all, of course, Jesus is trying to point us to the mercy that he's offering us, the mercy that he himself has come to bring to undeserving, sinful people. That's what he means when he says that the people who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the physician who's come to bring you the healing that you most desperately need deep down inside of you and that no one else can offer. I've not come to call the, quote, righteous. Some of your translations may even have, you know, little air quotes around that because I think that's the sense of what Jesus is saying here. If you think that you're righteous, that you've got it all figured out and, and you're in a good standing with God because of what you're doing and how you're living and how you're better than all those other people, that's a dangerous place to be. Look at the love, the kindness, the mercy that God has poured out to you. In the face of all of our rejection and rebellion and doubt and disobedience and faithlessness, I mean, I mean, what, what are we supposed to do if, if we really think that we're right with God? What does Jesus say? Well, there's really only two things. I mean, just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Go do that. I, none of us have ever done that. Not one day of our lives. To love God more than anything else. To give him absolutely my very best and to love my neighbor with the same intensity, the same focus, the same generosity, the same care that I give to myself. I don't do that on my best day. Jesus says, look at the mercy that God requires of us and will be humbled, but when we see the mercy that God provides to us, oh, it just it blows us away. When we see how unmerciful we are and how kind he is. And that's the whole point. Jesus is saying, I am the God who comes to sit down and break bread with big sinners, with people who know that they are a mess, with people who know that they need mercy. And if you know that that's you, Jesus says, I'm good news for you. I'm the healing and the life and the hope and the forgiveness that you long for. If you think that you're pretty good, if you don't see yourself as desperately broken and hopelessly lost, Jesus says, well, then I guess I haven't come for you and I don't have anything to offer you. Because Jesus is not just coming to, you know, rescue those poor, sad people whose lives are really messed up that that we can point to and, you know, kind of with a little bit of pity. Jesus comes to call sinners. All of us. People who are messed up and can't fix themselves. The ones who know that they're sick and lost and broken because those are the people God loves. Not good versus bad, but proud versus humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what God is like. Those are the people that God loves. Those are the people that Jesus comes to, to sit down with and say, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. 
Jesus challenges our expectations of who it is that God loves. And then he challenges our expectations of what God wants. Our expectations of what God wants. Look in verse 14. Then some disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Again, why? Why are you not fitting our expectations? Why, why do you not fit in our box, Jesus? Now, the, the John here is John the Baptist. And you may remember earlier in Matthew's gospel, he features kind of prominently. He's the, he's the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who points people to Jesus saying, he must increase and I must decrease. And, and so Jesus and John are on good terms, but, but they have very different kind of ministries, right? John is like super intense. He's out in the wilderness. He, he's uh, like wearing clothes made out of camel's hair and he's like scavenging for food, locusts and, and wild honey. I mean, this dude, and he's like telling everyone to repent and there's like laser beams coming out of his eyes. I mean, this, this is not a guy that you're just going to kind of envisioning sitting down with and having a nice pleasant chat or, or a laugh, right? Like John is saying, this is serious business. And his disciples are coming to Jesus' disciples and saying, why are you not taking this seriously? The world is a broken, messed up, sin-filled place and, and you should be angrier about that and more intense about that. And, and Jesus is saying... Look, I, I know you guys are about fasting and repentance, and, and they're wanting to you know, right, so why are you going to dinner parties and, and laughing it up with people and having a good time? And, and look at what Jesus says in verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, any of you been to a wedding? You're like, what are, what are weddings like? They're celebrations. Usually, I mean, if we're doing it right, there's music and great food and drinks and dancing and people that we're hanging out with and laughter and we're sharing stories and just celebrating good news. And, and Jesus is saying there's, there's something happening here as he is calling together in a new community of people and, and the proper response to who Jesus is and what he's doing is not somber but it's celebration. It's rejoicing. It's, it's not focusing on, you know, what we have to do or what we have to give up for God and all the sacrifices that we're making. No, it's, it's partying. It's giving thanks. Because the, the use of that wedding image is also intentional on an, another level. If you think ahead, or if you look ahead to Matthew uh, chapter 10, uh, Matthew records this, this group of 12 disciples. Again, you know, a great patterning and echo of the, the 12 children of Israel. So Jesus is connecting his story to the story of what God has done in creating a covenant community of people. He's creating a new family. That's what a wedding is, right? Two partners come together in a covenant relationship and they create a new family. And Jesus is saying that's what my being here is like. It's like a wedding celebration because there's this new family coming together. But it's a unique kind of family because in the beginning of Matthew 10, when you look at that list of these 12 disciples, three of them at the end of the list get a little extra mention and explanation, a little more detail around them. Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, why those three? That's kind of an interesting little detail itself, right? 
What is Jesus doing when he calls together a group like Matthew and Simon and Judas? He's creating a a new family and saying we have to celebrate because what God is doing here is bringing people together like a, a, a greedy, dishonest, empire-supporting profiteer like Matthew and a zealot like Simon. The zealots were these, they were like super Pharisees with swords. Like, we are so zealous for God's rule in this place that we're ready to kill any Roman that we come across and anyone who collaborates with them. So this is like Jesus is creating, you know, gas and a a lit match here together in this group. And he's saying the amazing thing is that I can actually do that, and that's a cause for celebration, that these people who would naturally hate each other could actually be invited into what I'm doing and the kind of community that I'm creating because their lives are being transformed and they're being changed and they're no longer looking at themselves or each other in the same way. It's time for a party. A few weeks ago, my wife Amelia and I got to uh, celebrate at a wedding for uh, Amy Chen and Brian Daniels. And uh, it was great, right? There was cake, there was food, there was music, there was dancing, there was laughter. I mean, imagine you show up at a wedding reception and you, you go to the, the host or the, you know, the family or whatever and you go like, no, no, I, I'm not going to have anything. I'm just going to sit in the corner and fast and, and pray and be very serious. That, that, I mean, that's not only inappropriate, it, it's rude and it's silly. It just shows you don't understand what's going on around you. And, and that's what Jesus is saying to these followers of John. It's, it's time to celebrate because of who I am and what I'm doing. And, and there will be a time to mourn, which I think is in, uh, pointing forward to his death. But then it's going to be time to celebrate again because Jesus isn't defeated by death. And I think the point here is, what what is God looking for? He's not inviting us into a life of religious rituals and and restrictions. He's not asking us to hate the world or or withdraw from it or look down on it. Jesus is not asking us to to wall ourselves off from people that we may disagree with. Because what does he do? He goes into the home of a tax collector. And and there's this tax collector and all his tax collector friends and all these other sinners. It's like... A party that the Pharisees wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And Jesus loves it because those are the people he loves. And and that's the kind of environment that he goes into where broken, hurting, lost people are. And, And he's also, God is not asking us to be serious and sad and somber all the time because the world is a broken, messed up place. It is, and there is a time to lament and weep with those who weep. But the major theme of what it means to know Jesus is celebration and joy at what God has done for us in him, that he loves and saves and changes broken, messed up people like us. And and he brings all that together in this image of not not putting an unshrunk piece of cloth on an old garment because it'll tear and and it'll rip everything apart, not putting new wine in old wineskins because as it ferments, the, the new wineskins are the ones that have to have the flexibility to, to expand as the wine ferments. And old wineskins are, are brittle and they, they can't do that. And Jesus is saying that there, when, when his kingdom shows up, when, when he starts to invade our lives, there's always going to be the shaking up of our expectations. 
He's not going to fit in our boxes. He's not someone that we can really define or control or always understand the answers to the why question. Because the, the, the new thing that Jesus is doing and it begins to bubble and ferment and grow and expand and, and it's active and, and he's saying, I think, Jesus, that if you haven't really come to understand Jesus in a way that he's challenging, that, that he's smashing, that he's in a sense like the, the two pieces of cloth tearing apart from each other, if Jesus is not in the process of radically reorienting and upending and, and blowing out the barriers of the ways that you think God is and who he loves and how he works. Maybe you don't really know him because that's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. And one of the things that that means is how we relate to people who have really messed up and blown it. Right? Like if, if people come to you and, and talk about something, maybe they share something really bad or ugly or icky or sinful or nasty that they've done, what is your response? See, if our response, like the Pharisees, is to pull back and say, uh, I don't know that I want to deal with that. That's a suggestion, I think, from Jesus that we're still thinking in these religious terms. Like, I, I can't deal with that. God's not okay with that. I'm not comfortable with that. How could you have done such a thing? I can't believe that. I mean, even if we don't say those things, if that's what's going on inside of us, it says I don't really believe that I'm as big a sinner as everyone else. I, I don't see myself as a big sinner in need of big forgiveness from Jesus. And, and if people don't feel the embrace and the sympathy and the kindness and the grace from Jesus from you, it, maybe it's because there's still this good, bad, religious mindset in you that, that Jesus wants to break you free from because it means you also can't help yourself when you fail. What do you do when you fail? Like you really blow it. You let yourself down. You let other people down. You hurt someone. And, and if you can't own that. If you, if you can't live with that, if, you know, I can't, oh, I can't, I can't look God because of that. I can't look at other people because of that. I can't look at myself because of that because I'm just so ashamed of, of what I've done. I'm knocking myself around. It says, again, I'm still thinking in terms of religious good and bad. And am I in the good box or am I in the bad box because of what I've been doing? But if Jesus is your Savior, you've transferred all of your trust to him. All, all of your identity is grounded in him. Jesus comes to you and, and calls to you and reminds you that I have come for sinners. And, and I want to sit down and break bread with you. I, I want to be with you. I've come for broken, hurting, needy people. And I want you to know that forgiveness and that mercy and that kindness Jesus eating with these sinners is actually something that should make us so profoundly grateful and happy because that's about us if we're reading the story the right way. We should be so blown away with gratitude and awe and worship that Jesus 
loves sinners because that's you and me. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I, I, know, I know that I'm not worthy. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me a good life. You don't owe me answers to my prayer because I'm, I'm not a good person. The division is not between good people and bad people. It's between proud people and humble people. And Jesus is saying, oh, I'm here for all the humble people who will come and say, I need you. I need you, Jesus. And then as that starts to filter out, it creates a community of people who do that for one another, who, who recognize all the boxes that we tend to put ourselves and other people in are just ridiculous. Because what matters is we're united in being drawn to God by Jesus' mercy and kindness and the fact that he would sit down and celebrate with sinners like me, like us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you love sinful, broken, needy people like us, that, uh, that you come into our world to challenge, to shake all of our expectations of what the Father is like and the kind of people that you hang out with and, and what kind of a life you expect from us and want for us. Oh, Jesus, would you be at work in our hearts? And help us to see the ways that, that we tend to put you in boxes, put other people in boxes, and the lines that we tend to draw. And Jesus, would you just challenge all of those expectations? Because you are so much bigger and so much better and so much more. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.